Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Journalism, the podcast where we talk about the latest works in journalism, media, and communication with the people who wrote them. I'm Dave Schwartz from the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. In this episode, we hear from Dan Kennedy of Northeastern University. The book is The Wired City, Reimagining Journalism and Civic Life in the Post-Newspaper Age. Dan, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Dave. Uh, so before we get too much in, into Wired City, and it's it's a really great read, and I want to really get in depth, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, your your background. You've got a pretty extensive professional background. How did you get to where you are now? Well, you know, I, I started in this business uh, many years ago uh, in the city of Woburn, which is about uh, 20 miles north of Boston, and uh, I worked there at a small daily paper called the Daily Times Chronicle. And uh, I did just about everything there. Probably the highlight of my career in Woburn uh, was covering the trial uh, that led to the book A Civil Action by Jonathan Haar. Uh, wonderful, wonderful book. And it was a, uh, a absolutely fascinating uh, case to cover. Uh, that, that, of course, was in the 1980s. Uh, the major part of my career before I came to Northeastern was spent at the Boston Phoenix. Uh, I was there from 1991 to 2005, and I spent most of that time as their media columnist. Um, and that kind of gave me entree to what I'm doing now because I had many, many years of, of covering the news media and um, seeing it in kind of its last full flowering. And then as I was getting ready to make the switch to academia, uh, kind of watching the beginning of the deterioration that we've, we've, we've seen over the last 10 years. And then since 2005, I've been full-time at Northeastern University teaching in the School of Journalism and uh, focusing my research really on new ways of doing local journalism um, in an era when the for-profit newspaper model isn't working very well anymore. Uh, It's interesting. I feel like in a way I've come full circle because I spent the first part of my career doing local journalism, and now I I, I research it and write about it. So the Wire City looks at uh, the the New Haven Independent in in Connecticut, New Haven, Connecticut. How how did you come? There are a lot of places that are trying this nonprofit model and which is what Wired City focuses on primarily. Um, how did you land at the independent? What was it about this publication and, and uh, this this organization that attracted you? Well, uh, in the spring and summer of 2009, I had it in my head that I was going to do a book that was going to be a very, very broad look 
at a wide range of digital journalism projects. Uh, I was looking at a site called News Trust, uh, which combines uh, social networking and journalism. Uh, I actually took a trip to Almaty, Kazakhstan, uh, hmm. not not to do the book, but uh, while I was there, I was able to ad- uh, interview the Central Asian editor, Central Asia editor of Global Voices, which is a wonderful project that aggregates um, citizen journalism around the world. And, uh, and, and I really had it in my head that I was going to do this very, very broad book. And one of the places I visited was the New Haven Independent. And at the end of the summer, I really came to realize that what I wanted to, that I didn't want to do this broad book. I wanted to do something that had some depth to it. And I wanted to focus it around the New Haven Independent because New Haven was interesting enough. The site was big enough and ambitious enough uh, to carry most of a book. And, uh, and quite frankly, it was within a day's drive of Boston. I mean, Voice of San Diego would be certainly worth a book as well, but I'm not going to be going back and forth to uh, San Diego from Boston very sure. quickly. Um, so there's a, there's a, it reminded me a little bit of, of C.W. Anderson's book that just came out on Rebuilding the News when he focused specifically on, on Philadelphia. Yes. Uh, well, you know, it's funny. I just, I just finished Chris's book uh, a couple of weeks ago. He and I were working on our books at roughly the same time, uh, looking at roughly the same period. So it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, he takes this very close-up look at Philadelphia. Uh, I'm looking at New Haven. I'm also looking at a few other places, but as you know from reading the book, but primarily New Haven. And, uh, and, and it's, it's interesting to see how um, – the traditional media evolved and and kind of fell on hard times in both of those cities, and what sorts of alternatives have have risen up to take their place. And I think the fact that the Independent is, is a nonprofit just makes this book so timely. I mean, was that was that a goal? I mean, when you decided that okay, your your first topic was too broad, and you and you needed to to narrow it down, did you decide that you wanted to look? Did you want to look at something that was just, you know, trying to turn around and become successful? Or did you want to look at this, I don't want to, it's not really new anymore, but this newish model of the nonprofit? Well, I think that what appealed to me about the nonprofit funding model is that I do believe that fundamentally the advertising model that uh, the media have relied on since the 1830s uh, has pretty much fallen apart and is not going to come back together again, uh, except in a fairly limited way. Uh, for instance, <clears throat> one of the other projects that I look at fairly closely in the book is the Batavian out in western New York, mm-hmm. which is a for-profit site. And uh, the 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 uh, owner of the Batavian, Howard Owens, is doing very good work, uh, but they have to work it ridiculously hard to get the advertising they need to keep the site going, and uh, and there isn't as much time left over to do the kind of in-depth journalism that that you would like to see, although. 
Howard points out that he's been able to move his activities more from advertising to journalism over the past year or so, even since I finished my research on the book. Nevertheless, uh, what you have in New Haven is a situation where uh, the foundation community, uh, especially the foundation community, some large donors, are able to give money to see the kind of quality hyper-local journalism that advertising can no longer support. So given the fact that advertising is not going to come back, at least not in any sort of form that we recognized it in the past, I thought it was really important to look at a, uh, an alternative to that model. And, and the result is this book that, that at least to me seems incredibly hopeful. And well, I well I am very hopeful. Absolutely. Did did uh, were you? I, I before the process of writing this book began. I mean, you know, who knows when a process begins? But you know, early on, did you anticipate that it would undertake this tone, or did your research and and your field work in this drive you drive that hope? Well, I guess I would say that from the first time I sat down with Paul Bass, mm-hmm. which was practically four years ago to the day that we're talking. Uh, within a week or so, uh, I was pretty charged up about what he was doing. Um, Paul Bass is kind of a legend in the New Haven media scene. He's, he's done everything. He was the, the, um, kind of the star columnist for the alt weekly there for many years, the New Haven advocate. Uh, he's been on radio and since 2005, he's been doing this, the New Haven independent. And, uh, you know, you can't help but come away feeling optimistic and enthusiastic when you sit down with Paul Bass and talk to him about what he's doing. And then of course you have to see, does the rhetoric I'm, I'm sorry, does the reality match the rhetoric? And it does, because the coverage in the New Haven Independent is extremely good. It's very detailed. Uh, you really get some depth. Uh, he's got some absolutely terrific young reporters working for him, as well as uh, a few people who are, are closer to my age, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I was, I was enthusiastic and hopeful about what he was doing, uh, from the time that I met him four years ago. And my hope uh, during that time was that he would be able to sustain it during the time that I was doing my reporting and research. And uh, he's absolutely been able to do that. I mean, the the survival of the independent uh, is assured at least for the next couple of years at this point. And he's always working a couple of years out. So I would not be at all surprised if it's able to continue for some time after that. I'm curious about the the methods uh, in, in which you gathered the, the research and, and, and your notes for this book. Um, how much time, would, how often were you in New Haven? And how much time did you overall did you spend, um, you know, in their facilities and around their culture i wish i had spent more time than i did dave uh ideally i would have loved to move down there for six months that would have been great uh but i just was not in a position to do that Uh, i would say that in 2009 2010 uh and early 2011 
I made uh, numerous trips to New Haven, uh, sometimes shooting down just for the day, sometimes staying for a few days. Uh, and I spent my time uh, hanging out at the New Haven Independent, which is hard to do because they hardly have any room. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a tiny little room uh, that they uh, rent from uh, the local Spanish language newspaper, La Voz uh, de Hispania, uh, which is a partner with the Independent. And they all just kind of work and hang out in there. I've gone out on stories with um, with Paul Bass, with Melissa Bailey, the managing editor, uh, with Thomas McMillan and uh, Alan Apple, who were both uh, reporters for the site. And uh, I think that this was – what was really important to me as well was to really get away from the independent folks and – talk to other people as well. I, I interviewed a number of people in the African-American community, a very important part of what people are doing in New Haven because New Haven is a majority-minority community. Um, I interviewed city leaders. I interviewed uh, the mayor of New Haven. And I interviewed a few people from the New Haven Register, which is the uh, Metropolitan Daily uh, down there, uh, which has gone through several very interesting evolutions just in the uh, fairly short time that I spent uh, writing about the uh, – I'm sorry, reporting on and researching the book. You know, you brought something up, and I wanted to sort of save – some of this until the end, but I'm glad that you brought it up now, and we'll just we'll just jump ahead. I I thought it was great the way you were talking to people, you know, from the town around New Haven itself, because it is such a, a, a diverse community. Uh, what were some of your findings? What in talking to to the folks of New Haven, how did they view uh, their their representations around town, and, and how do you think the independent can play into that? Well, you know, one of the things I found in the African-American community in particular is that when I first started doing my reporting, uh, the New Haven Register had a practice of simply letting people and, – and, and to a, a degree that ended up surprising me, I ended up writing about the way that news sites handle reader comments – and uh, so one of the more interesting findings was that when the New Haven Register, uh, when I first started writing about this a few years ago, uh, the Register was not screening comments. And whenever a story about crime or something like that would go up, uh, there were a number of people who were posting anonymous racist comments. And... The register was simply losing African-American readers as a result of this. I talked to a number of people in the community. It's one of the first things they brought up, the comments. That's why they had stopped reading the register. Uh, the New Haven Independent, by contrast, screened every comment before it went up. And uh, they have been able, uh, in a way that has eluded a lot of other news sites, to um, have a fairly civil and productive conversation around their comments. Now, interestingly enough, toward the end of my research, 
Uh, in fact, a lot of this took place after my research, and I was trying to scramble to get some references into the book. Uh, the Register ended up hiring a uh, very progressive young editor named Matt Dorenzo. And uh, one of the first things he did was he had the register start screening comments. So that ended up being um, less of an issue. And then, ironically, the, the Independent ended up having its own crisis with comments where they were just getting overwhelmed and they accidentally put up some horrible comment about the mayor. And uh, they actually ended up having to shut down comments for a couple of weeks while they rethought what they were doing. And they came back a couple of weeks later with stricter rules. But I think it shows that the conversation with your community is an incredibly important part of what we need to be doing these days, but it has to be managed. And what worked a year ago might not work today because things change and you always have to be on top of it. An organization such as the Independent that has that doesn't have to constantly be pushing for advertising, you know, the way the register does it. You you have that flexibility where you can seem to, you know, consider, you know, the, the editorial challenges and opportunities and not so much always trying to think where the next, you know, you know, where's payroll gonna come for the next two weeks or for the next four weeks. Well, that's right. And I think that that gets into a discussion of the different roles of a metropolitan newspaper like the New Haven Register and a uh, local hyperlocal news site like the Independent. And that is the Register, and the Register is not – this certainly doesn't make them unique, uh, but they tend to focus on the suburbs around New Haven – uh, more than they do the city. Uh, the city, it, it's not that they don't cover the city, but they take a lot of interest in, it seems to be, crime and Yale. And some other stuff, too. I mean, I, I, they, they've got good reporters there. Uh, I, I think Matt Dorenzo is doing a good job as editor. But this is typically what metropolitan papers do. They, they go where their readers are. They go where the advertisers are, and that's out in the suburbs. Uh, the Independent, by contrast, um, generally speaking, it could happen right over the border in Hamden, and they're not going to cover it because they are New Haven only. So you get this really deep, nuanced, wide look at the, na at the neighborhoods of New Haven uh, that you just really can't get anywhere else. You know, it, it really has the feel of, of a constant ongoing case study that just goes deeper and deeper and deeper and where, where the sustainability <laughs> comes from depth, not from how wide you can cast that net. Well, that's right. And, you know, Thomas McMillan, who uh, is just an absolutely wonderful reporter for The Independent, uh, was talking to me once about um, how depth gets defined in The Independent. He was a little bit frustrated. He said he used to be a little bit frustrated that you couldn't sit down and do the big four to 5,000 word takeout, the definitive piece on a particular subject um, because the focus in the independent is, you know, it's on breaking news. Not that they don't have some depth. Their stories tend to be uh, quite a bit longer than you might be used to seeing in print simply because they have the space. 
uh, but nevertheless, you don't have the big four to five thousand word takeout. But what Thomas said he had come to realize was that the depth emerges over time, and uh, you you do uh, stories that you do uh, are are maybe they're incremental. Um, you link back to your previous coverage. And, and then over time, you begin to see that you've got the depth. The depth is really there. It's just that it's not necessarily in any one day's um, story that you're doing. I mean, Melissa Bailey has covered uh, school reform in New Haven. And, and New Haven uh, has a nationally recognized education reform effort underway. And uh, she'll go off and do a story, and some of them are quite detailed. I accompanied her on one that was just absolutely fascinating. I, I got to sit in on a teacher evaluation as long as I didn't identify the name of the teacher. And of course, Melissa didn't do that either. Uh, but you know, when she writes a story on school reform, you get to the bottom of the story, and there are links to, you know, 25 previous stories that she's done. And there's the depth. And it's depth of a sort that you tend not to get in community journalism very often. You, know, the, you, you opened the book with this really uh, quite interesting story, but if I hopefully pronounce the last name right, Annie Lee. And Annie Lee is, is missing. If, if you would, for, for those who are listening to the podcast, can you kind of take us through uh, this anecdote and how it, uh, what kind of impact it had and meaning it had for the independent? Annie Lee was a uh, young Yale graduate student who was working, she had a part-time job working in a lab at Yale. And um, the uh, I'm, I'm going to go grab my copy of the book. Hold on a second. I'm trying to, uh, I, I just want to make sure that I get the uh, nuances of this right because it's been a while since I wrote about this. Uh, but what happened was um, Paul Bass got a call to... Um, from Yale asking if he could put up a brief notice about Annie Lee because she'd been missing for a few days. So we put up something very short and really didn't think about it much after that. And one of the things that uh, Paul has set as a goal for the independent is not to spend too much time covering Yale because he, he figures that Yale is getting plenty of coverage elsewhere. But as it turned out, this turned into one of the biggest stories in the history of the city because unfortunately she ended up being a murder victim uh, her oh it, i mean the details of it were pretty horrific her body was found like in a wall partition uh on the day that she was supposed to be married and at that point the independent fully mobilized and uh they were the uh, they were finding things on social media and reporting on them. Uh, they were finding that, the, that they found the suspects, a, a high school girlfriend of the suspect who said that he had abused her, uh, the fiancé of the suspect who couldn't believe that this was happening. Uh, but one of, the, one of the aspects of the story that was very interesting and said a lot about Paul Bass's view of journalism and community is that even though The Independent was beating everybody to some of these huge stories, uh, he would not re run the name of the suspect uh, 
until after he had been formally charged in court. You had a situation in which the police chief called a news conference and gave out the name describing him as a person of interest. And uh, Paul said, just as a matter of principle, he wasn't going to release the name until the person was formally charged in court. And I, I thought that was an, a very interesting statement about ethics and how uh, Paul Bass viewed um, his role in the community. By the way, I'm not sure I agreed, but it was nevertheless a, a pretty striking development. Now, the other thing that happened was the independence traffic went through the roof as a result of this story. Uh, people from around the country were starting to follow them. And that didn't make a lot of difference to the future of the independent. But what did matter to the future of the independent was that a lot of local people started hearing about the independent for the first time and began reading it on a regular basis. So even though web traffic dropped after the Annie Lee case, it never dropped to the level that it was before. It, it reached a new, higher level. So it's those kinds of stories that even though they don't really fit with the independence mission of 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 telling the story of the neighborhoods and 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 doing that kind of public service journalism nevertheless it meant a lot to their readers and it resulted in a big boost for the independent's visibility readership and ultimately funding and it was, and it was what an interesting place to to start the book as well because at at this you know the book you know, it could have, you could have done a lot of history, and which you did. It's, it's in there, but at the same time, you could have built it up. You know, almost this, that almost could have been you know a climax, where you know it, this is. Uh, when I read, I read that. I thought, wow, if this was the movie Rocky, it would have been as if Rocky the movie started with him, you know, fighting Apollo at the very end when, when, he, <laughs> when he got all the attention. And here's the spot where really this is sort of what really what put them on the map. And and uh, so I really I think I appreciated that structure because you you could have really you know been weighed down you know on one of these sort of upstart to success type stories but you started with what you know at the time was one of their greatest successes and I thought that was just a really uh, a, a keen way of beginning the the book. Well, thanks, Dave. I mean, I have been working as a journalist since the seventies, and if you don't grab them right off the bat, you might as well forget it. Right. Um. If you use the term, um, or I think it's somebody else's term, of a former audience, and there's there's a chapter called "The Care and Feeding of the of the quote former audience." What do you mean by that? Well, this was a phrase that uh, Dan Gilmore came up with in his book "We the Media." Uh, about 10 years ago, and it's been amplified by Jay Rosen of New York University, uh, who wrote a very uh, widely quoted blog post a number of years ago called uh, The People Formerly Known as the Audience. And the idea is that um, the, the, our readers, and readers is kind of an old-fashioned term because, of course, uh, the Independent and some of the other sites that I write about in the book uh, are throwing text and video and photos at you. So you really have to look at them as the audience. But then you have to take it another level and say, well, audience is a very passive term, isn't it? 
we report, you sit there and, and watch what we give you. But people don't have to do that anymore. They can talk back to you and they can talk among themselves. And that is what uh, Dan Gilmore and Jay Rosen mean by the former audience. And that's really what I mean by the former audience. And this, this gets into that notion of, um, of uh, comments that I was talking about, taking them seriously, because if they don't, um, if they don't, if you don't take them seriously, they're going to move on. Now, let me pa- parallel that by talking about what I think is maybe one of the most important themes in my book, and that is the notion of civic engagement. There's an awful lot of talk about what we need is media literacy, right? I mean, we hear the phrase media literacy all the time. I'm not sure that I accept that. I think that what we really need is civic literacy because more than anything, uh, people today, especially younger people today, and by younger I mean people under 40, are fundamentally not that interested in what the city council's doing, what the board of education's doing, what the zoning commission's doing, uh, what their neighbors are doing a couple of blocks away. All of that stuff, we've become kind of alienated from all that. This is kind of what Robert Putnam was writing about in Bowling Alone in 2000. It's, uh, it's people who are engaged in the community are newspaper readers. Well, the flip side of that is if you're not engaged in the community, then you're not newspaper readers or news site readers or whatever. So I really think that what we need to do is if we're going to survive, if journalism is going to survive and thrive at the local level, we actually need to educate and engage the former audience in becoming interested in civic life and civic engagement. And so that's really what a a lot of what I write about is about. There's a section in the book toward the end where I describe an education reform summit that the New Haven Independent put together. And I'll tell you, it's like a three-ring circus of civic engagement. (laughs) Um, They uh, they had ten speakers up on the stage – uh, on the other side of the stage, they had five live bloggers, uh, including the mayor. Uh, um, mayor John DeStefano was one of the live bloggers. Uh, it was webcast in a couple of different places. Um, the Independent ended up running a couple of stories about it that attracted dozens of comments. Uh, and if you really want to get old-fashioned at the forum, people could also stand up at the microphone and ask questions, which which seemed very 20th century compared to what else was going on. But the idea was to encourage this community-wide conversation and to use every technical tool at their disposal to make that happen. And that's a lot of what the New Haven Independent is really all about beyond the fact that it's running stories about what's going on in the city every day. This idea of civic engagement, in whether it's the Independent or, or the Connecticut Mirror or the Voice of San Diego, any of these nonprofits, or even some for-profits, which could learn a lot of lessons from the nonprofits and vice versa. Is it a matter of, of striking up these relationships with 
those who are civically engaged or a combination of also trying to spark that civic engagement? Well, I think it's both. Um, you know, to this day, the New Haven Independent is not – doesn't have the sort of community reach that the New Haven Register does. Um, the people who read the Independent tend to be um, city leaders, neighborhood activists, um, certainly city employees, especially teachers and police officers, um, leaders in the African-American community. Uh, and that's a lot of people. But um, I'm not sure – it's hard to know how far it trickles down into uh, ordinary members of the community. However, I, I think that it's probably safe to um, guess that as a result of the kind of, of uh, civic coverage that the independent covers uh, provides, um, then – there are a lot more people who are interested in civic affairs uh, than would have been the case in the absence of the independent. Um, one of the people I interviewed uh, is Mark Oppenheimer, who is a pretty well-known journalist himself, and as it turns out, he lives about a block from from uh, from Paul Bass and his family. And uh, he made the point to me that just the simple fact that the independent was online. Um, now, granted, today everybody's online, but just the simple fact that the that the independent was a a part of the internet was a key to reaching people who might not otherwise be civically engaged because he said you could have a free print newspaper and people have simply not built time into their lives anymore to read that free print newspaper. But you put it online, people are checking in during their lunch hour, checking in a few days, a few times during the day, and maybe they're a transplant. Maybe they came to New Haven to uh, work at Yale and they don't know that much about the city and they didn't really think they were that interested, but they become very interested as a result of this um, hyperlocal news source being available to them uh, anytime they, they want to check in and see what's new. Sure. I'm going to make a bit of a, of a rough transition here. We're starting to get a little short on time, but there's some, a couple of the points I want to get to. One is you look at some some four profit ventures, some, some for-profit organizations in this piece as well. Um, you mentioned the Batavian before, and, and there's the, the News Junkie. Um, how did that serve this book? What, what was your, your motivation behind uh, including some for-profit um, entities in this work of yours? Well, I wanted to do a little bit of compare and contrast uh, between uh, some of the big nonprofits, such as The Independent and Voice of San Diego, uh, with some of the uh, for-profits that are starting up. And I don't think every place is going to be able to support a nonprofit. I think it's important that there be projects that go out into the community and still try to pursue that advertising model. Uh, so I wanted to take a look at what Howard Owens was doing in Batavia, New York. 
Uh, I was originally attracted to CT News Junkie because the the uh, owner of the site, which is a for-profit site, uh, nevertheless also works as the statehouse reporter for the New Haven Independent. Uh, her name is Christine Stewart, and she does an absolutely terrific job. Um, what I found is that people at the for-profits are doing some really nice work, uh, but they are uh, they, they simply aren't able to get that money in the kind of large chunks that some of the more successful nonprofits are to really be able to staff up and, uh, and, and do a lot of in-depth journalism. For instance, I'll, I'll just give you one example. Several years after Christine Stewart had been doing CT News Junkie, you know, working like crazy trying to build it up, uh, the Connecticut Mirror comes along a large nonprofit, uh, the only news organization in Connecticut that has a Washington reporter, believe it or not. Um, and uh, they just were able to bring many more resources to the table than Christine was with CT News Junkie, although News Junkie still manages to do some terrific coverage. But that kind of provides that kind of compare and contrast between what a nonprofit can do and what a for-profit can do, and that I thought would be an important part of the book. Sure. How do you think your time with you know with the Phoenix and your time as a media critic help help you sharpen your eye for what you were seeing in, in your examination of these different publications here? Well, boy, that's a great question. Uh, I'm not sure I have a very good answer for it, except that. Uh, I had many years of experience of, uh, of, of interviewing journalists. So when I went off to do this book, the idea of interviewing journalists was not really that alien to me. Um, and, uh, you know, one wonderful thing about the Phoenix, which sadly went out of business a couple of months ago, right. uh, was the ability to just every day working with incredibly smart people and, uh, and, and getting guidance from them as to how to go about covering the media. And, uh, it, it might be difficult to summarize what those lessons were, but, but certainly, uh, the experience that I had of covering the media for many years, um, came to bear in, in researching this book. Sure. Has, has Paul, you know, one of your main subjects in the book, has Paul seen the book? Has he read it? He has read the book. Uh, Howard Owens has read the mm -hmm. book. Uh, I think a couple of other people at the Independent have read it. Uh, people at the New Haven Register have read it, um, and uh, so there's and there's already been a few copies uh, floating around. So, so yeah, they've read it, and um, you know, people basically seem to be enthusiastic about it. I haven't I haven't heard any complaints yet, although I'm sure I will at some point. Yeah, always, of course, always. Um, so you. At, at the end, there's there's not quite a prescription, but but you do try to look into the you know the crystal ball, the educated crystal ball for where things are headed. Um, for places like the independent, and you know what? I don't want to say places like it. Let's just take just the independent. For the independent, uh, you know, uh, no, they're good for the next you know couple three years in terms of funding. Assuming they're good for say the next solid half decade, how do you see them continuing to grow and evolve? Um. <clears throat> I'm not sure how much they're going to continue to grow and evolve. They're actually 
a little bit smaller than they were at the peak of when I was doing my reporting. Uh, they had five full-time people for a good part of the time I was reporting on them. Today, they have four. So they're kind of up and down, um, trying to uh, get by as best they can. Uh, so in that regard, I don't really know how much growth is going to be. Uh, what you want is sustainability. On the other hand, the New Haven Register traces its roots to uh, Benjamin Franklin in the 1760s. And uh, I don't think that anybody is going to uh, achieve that kind of sustainability anymore. And I'm not even sure that it's desirable. I think we're going to see things come and go. And at some point, um, right now, everything seems to be uh, going along fine. But at some point, something else may come along in New Haven and uh, Paul Bass may decide he wants to retire and nobody wants to take it over. You know, who knows? Um, I, I, I think that the important thing is that we we continue to push toward ways of doing quality community journalism. I don't think it necessarily has to be tied up in any one person or in any one project. So now that Wired City is, is pretty much, it's done, it's, it's, it's coming out, what is next for you? What kind of things do you have, are you uh, working on? Well, you know, in the epilogue, I make mention of the Banyan Project, which is a, an attempt to start... Uh, cooperatively owned news sites. And uh, since I wrote the epilogue, I've become more convinced that we, we probably do need an alternative to both the for-profit and the non-profit model. Because what's happened with the non-profit model is that the IRS has made it increasingly difficult for news organizations to win the kind of nonprofit status that when Paul Bass got it 10 years ago or eight years ago was kind of routinely given. Uh, the IRS has kind of stopped that without explaining it very well. So uh, I'm this summer, I'm trying to spend some time in Haverhill, Massachusetts, which is where the Banyan Project hopes to uh, unveil its first cooperatively owned news site uh, this fall. It will be called Haverhill Matters. And if it works, if, if it comes off, uh, I think that Banyan is hoping to seed a number of um, news co-ops around the country. And what happens is it's kind of like a food co-op or a credit union. Uh, people become members. Uh, they're able to contribute in a variety of ways. And uh, you end up ideally with a uh, very interesting alternative to whatever existing media you already have in the community. Um, so the Banyan Project has been a long time in the making. It, I have to tell you, it's taken them an awful long time to get to this point where they're finally going to launch in Haverhill. But it does seem like they're finally there, and, uh, and, and I'm, I'm very interested to see what they're able to do. Well, the book is The Wired City, and the author is Dan Kennedy. And, Dan, this is a, an important book with some good lessons, and thanks for spending some time with us. Well, thanks for having me on, Dave. I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to New Books and Journalism, part of the New Books Network. You can find The Wired City, written by Dan Kennedy, at Amazon and other retailers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>